Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Many people are depressed. Many of us are sad. Some of us have the blues. Some of us just feel funky. What is that all about? Is that something psychological or is there more to it? Uh, Statistics show that over 350 million people worldwide are currently suffering from depression. One in six of us will be affected by a depressive disorder during our lifetimes. Can our lifestyle choices, our diets, what we choose to do, affect our mood? According to Dr. Greenblatt, uh, many of the GPs, that's general practitioners, write uh, many scripts for depression and many for anxiety. People with depression are four times as likely to have a heart attack than those with no depression. Also, those with depression that have had a heart attack have a higher chance for further um, heart attacks. Depressed people are more likely to use alcohol and blood and drugs. So there seem to be artificially drawn boundaries between the body and mind. Sometimes symptoms are dismissed as psychosomatic and a lesser issue. Oh my gosh, you're just imagining that. Yet, the brain and body do interact. The gut and brain have strong connections. How do all the different things we've discussed in this show affect our mental health, feelings of well-being, and depression? So today we have an expert, Ray Griffiths who has written a book on the topic. His book is called Depression, The Mind-Body Diet and Lifestyle Connection. Ray is a registered nutritionist and lecturer and hails from the south of England, living in a 16th century cottage on the borders of Essex and Suffolk. Oh, that sounds so idyllic. He's been researching and practicing nutrition over 20 years and lecturing for over 10 His uh, Master's of Science dissertation was on the role that mitochondria play in Parkinson's disease, and we've discussed mitochondria many times. Those are the powerhouses that give us our energy so that our body can do all the things it needs to do to go toward wellness. Mr. Griffin's lectures and webinars have covered diverse subjects such as cancer and nutrition, chronic fatigue, cardiovascular health, neurodegeneration, uh, multiple sclerosis, and aging. He has a background in broadcast engineering and likes to apply a similar style systems philosophy to nutrition and biochemistry. He uses this approach to challenge and greatly expand the existing ideas and concepts. So welcome, Ray. Hello. Great to speak to you. Yeah. Yeah, and and, uh, it is idyllic. The the, the cottage in the the, the country is just absolutely beautiful and great for your mind, body and soul. I want to move there right now. I mean, it's too much of a rush in this life. There's pressures. Oh, you've got to pay this bill. You've got to get this appointment. Oh, I'm fantasizing right now. I hope I can do the radio show in the midst of my fantasies. But anyway, I met Ray at a dinner. I sat next to this uh, interesting-looking guy, and so here we are. So tell us, uh, what led you to write this book? Um, there's a, several reasons that have all intersected. You, you mentioned one of them, which was 
uh, working um, with Parkinson's and writing my dissertation on how mitochondria are implicated in Parkinson's. So that really opened me up to the nervous system. I have issues of my own. I have I've suffered from fatigue. I had some head injuries, concussions. So I, I really wanted to look after my own brain and, and was really interested and fascinated in how the nervous system works in, in many different diseases. And uh, I, I became very interested when I found out that the hippocampus, this part of the brain that's heavily involved in depression, can shrink during depressive disorders, and yet it has the ability to regrow. And I just was hooked on the idea that we can do things to help this hippocampus that's involved in depression, that we can help it regrow through neurogenesis. And I wanted to know more and wrote about it. Well, I mean, the hippocampus is huge and it does shrink. I mean, it, one of the first things we look for when we're trying to figure out if somebody's going down the path of Alzheimer's disease or dementia is to look at, you know, is the brain shrinking and particularly the hippocampus where uh, a lot of the issues with Alzheimer's might first appear because it's associated with memory and temporary storage of information that we take in. So the hippocampus is huge. So yeah, tell me absolutely. why the front cover of your book has a seahorse on us. Tell, tell us about that. Um, well, the, the hippocampus is a seahorse shape. It's just shapes, uh, it looks very, very like a seahorse. And, and I love that. I love the, the idea that this is sea animal that many, many people identify with and um, feel drawn towards that it has this mystery about it. And, and it's it, this shape is in the depths of our brains. I, I love that symbolism of the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is the Greek word for seahorse. Um, and, I, and I love that symbolism, and it, it, it really helps me, and I hope others, to identify with how to nurture that part of our brain. So tell us, what is the role of hippocampus in our health? The, um, as you said, the hippocampus is involved with short-term memory and it, and it tends to work with the amygdala, with the cortex, the prefrontal cortex. It works together to control uh, memory, short-term memory, and it works with long-term memory as well. It feeds things into long-term memory. Um, and, and yeah, working closely with the amygdala, it's involved in emotion as well. And we, that is that connection with emotion and memory, which is really important in depression. Um, and we need to be able to draw on good memories. We need to be able to be putting experience back into the cortex. And if the hippocampus shrinks, we cannot um, have all this control of our memory and our mood. And, and it, it leads to depressive disorders. Well, as I said, the hippocampus is like a temporary storage place, like a shelf. A new information comes in, we put it on a shelf, kind of, and that's the hippocampus. And then later we retrieve it and yeah. put it into deeper memory. That's why people who are developing Alzheimer's disease, they might ask the same question four times in a row, and you're wondering, well, I just yeah. answered that. Because it never gets into, if it gets into temporary storage, the hippocampus isn't processing it very well. So short-term memory and this temporary storage place for our memories, which we hope will be more ingrained, is very important. But why don't you tell the listener what the amygdala are and the frontal cortex are the well my my main focus is on the hippocampus but the, the amygdala is is heavily involved in emotion and works closely with the um hippocampus to to almost give context to our memory so uh, when we 
when we remember something that has has quite a strong emotional charge and and it's that's so important for memory to be able to have some sort of context and emotional charge so the the more uh, emotional uh, attachment we have to a memory the stronger it remains in 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 our, in our memory um and as you, as you said the the cortex and the hippocampus are like working in short term and long term and i i liken it to like those yellow post-it notes where the hippocampus is just jotting things down uh, moment by moment during the day and then it will archive it into the the cortex uh, later on i see the cortex like a leather-bound journal where you're putting today's memories in and also drawing from them as well to be able to work with those memories from the past so tell us how the hippocampus is related to depression and anxiety um, the, the hippocampus, um, as I said, it, it, it shrinks, um, and we know, we know that it, it shrinks and we, we, we have this process called neurogenesis. So I'm not really talking directly about how it's related to depression and anxiety, just the fact that we know it shrinks during depressive disorders. And if we can't allow those cells to rebuild themselves, replace themselves, then that can deepen the depression. So neurogenesis is something that I, I really wanted to focus on in the book to, to, to learn how we can feed the hippocampus from food, from from um, components of food, and also from diet and lifestyle as well. So that, that was more my focus. These are very important. So you mentioned the shrinkage of the hippocampus and depression and anxiety. Is this just associated with these illnesses or could it be causative? I mean, meaning that the shrinking hippocampus is going to lead to depression and anxiety. There's a theory, there's a hypothesis. Uh, there's a hypothesis that, uh, that, that there's a shrinking of the hippocampus causes depression. There's many, many different uh, hypotheses about depression and one of them is that shrinking so I think we need to lo- know far more but it's a working hypothesis and I, I and I like I like working with the hypothesis because um, it's something that as nutrition we can do something about as, as people advising on on lifestyle it's something we can do something about so uh, that's where I like to focus because that's where we can work with that neurogenesis. Uh, just as a side note, Dr. James Greenblatt discusses there are many, many different causes and contributions to depression. Just like every other disease, everything is so interconnected. Each There's a lot of individuality, but some of the contributing causes he mentions for depression are biochemical, physical, uh, overactive immune system, uh, hormonal, the gut is hugely involved, which we will get to, mitochondria are hugely involved. So it's like a complex sympathy that ever symphony that everything is interacted and connected to each other so and sounds like the hippocampus is an important part of this so and um, and all those and all those things you mentioned all intersect in the hippocampus as well so the inflammation the toxins uh the blood sugar stress all those things intersect in the hippocampus so that as you say the everything the gut brain axis will affect the hippocampus too so it's a really good place to focus it's hugely important. Um, so psychiatry seems to be one of the few medical disciplines where there are few measurements to measure how you're doing, uh, you know, other than subjective measurements. So how does one know if they have depression? Um, that's not that's not really my, my area, I'm afraid, on, on, okay. on measuring how someone has to. Do you mean like a, 
um, sort of a, what, where you're okay. asking someone a question and you're, you're, you're kind of ascertaining how they score on, on, that, um, on that questionnaire. Okay, uh, we'll go on to another question. Um, obviously, uh, a lot of people have drawn artificial lines between the body and the mind, but how do the body and mind influence others? For example, the brain weighs three pounds and uses 20% of the energy. It's got a lot of mitochondria. So how do the mm. brain and body influence each other? There's, there's many, many different ways that the, the brain and body influence each other. As you, as you say, that the uh, first of all, in energy terms, that the mitochondria that uh, feed our brain and in our hippocampus, the mitochondria, that they, they need to be providing um, something like, um, yeah, 20 to 25% of all our energy going into this uh, the nervous system, which only weighs 2% of our body. That brain only weighs 2% of our body, yet it's taking between a quarter and a fifth of all our oxygen and energy supplies. So it's, it's hugely um, hungry for resources. And our mitochondria, these microscopic um, I almost see them like Duracell batteries, which are feeding every single cell and particularly our nervous system. So that's really important. Without getting enough energy and enough oxygen, we're not going to be able to feel that well. So that, that's, that's, that's one aspect. Um, also, uh, that being on the right part of the nervous system as well, the, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, these are the two sides of a autonomic nervous system which put us in either into fight or flight for sympathetic or into the rest recovery part of the nervous system and we, we need to be to, to keep our brain nourished and reduce inflammation we need to be relaxed more and, and engaging in things which nourish our, our brains beyond just food. Very important. So you mentioned inflammation, and we've mentioned inflammation as underlying most diseases here. I remember like eight years ago, I mean, some people saying, oh, is there a connection between depression and heart disease? And I'm looking at them, really? Well, they both have inflammation underneath them, so why are you guys so surprised? But anyway, so tell us how inflammation, uh, since it's connected to most diseases, tell us how it's connected to depression. Um, the, there's these, uh, the immune system in our brain, uh, there's these immune cells called microglia. And when they're overly activated, but they, they tend to be really good for mopping up mild injury, mild, mild inflammation. But when they're overly activated, and that can be through injury, through poor diet, um, that could also be if someone's treating you badly, that they can also inflame as well so <laughs> there's a, also a psychological inflammation that occurs but these microglia when they start to um, inflame they can inhibit this neurogenesis process this hippocampal renewal they can inhibit that they destroy mitochondria so there's not enough energy so they're quite destructive they can open up the blood-brain barrier and, and allow toxins into the brain so yeah as I said they're, they're very destructive and we need to find ways First of all, to stop them being overly active and, and then find ways to reduce the, the, the level of activity once they are activated. Well, the thing about microglia is once they get started, it's extremely, extremely hard to stop them. I mean, this can just uh, start with a few of them and just grow and grow and grow over time. And some experts say that yeah. it's 
really, really hard to stop. So it's important. Yeah. You also mentioned things like opening up the blood-brain barrier. I mean, uh, I mean, there's. I understand there's a connection between the gut and the blood-brain barrier, and you know, so if the gut is, um, you know. Uh, that, that barrier is open, which it is probably in most of us a lot of the time. Uh, there's a connection that the blood-brain barrier might be open. Toxins open the blood-brain barrier. Glyphosate opens mm. the blood-brain barrier. Electromagnetic fields have been shown to open the blood-brain barrier. So once that mm. protective barrier protecting our brain from all these outside insults is open, we're very vulnerable. I mean, how many people in the audience have had kind of brain fog where they just kind of space out and oh, what happened? Or they feel kind of a rush. Mm. That means something got into the brain. That means something's affecting your brain. That means your blood-brain barrier could be open and you don't know what's going in. So protecting our brain and you know, from inflammation is hugely important. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the the blood-brain barrier, and particularly as we get older as well, it increases our chances of neurodegeneration. So it being leakier as we get older and and things like uh, aluminium, so uh, that, that aluminium in, say, vaccines may be quite damaging to the blood-brain barrier as well. So we have to be careful of, of that point. Um, the yeah, and, and many many health conditions from depression to neurodegeneration all have this uh, blood-brain barrier issue. And, and one of the things that we know with with caffeine, because caffeine tends to protect against depression and neurodegeneration, we know that caffeine can help close the blood-brain barrier. It may not be for everyone. It may be problematic for, for many people, but for, for quite a few people, caffeine can actually be something that helps to improve the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. That's very important. Many of us are slow metabolizers of uh, caffeine, so that could uh, you, you could feel a lot of side effects more readily than others. Actually, some of the yeah. studies show that if people drink one cup of coffee per day, if they're a slow metabolizer, it will help their longevity. But if somebody is a slow uh, metabolizer, then uh, one or two two cups of coffee might be detrimental. So as you say, it's not one size fits all, but it's uh, see if you're a slow metabolizer or not. That can be done genetically or just see, do you really get jacked up after caffeine? So once again, there's individuality. But one thing that's interesting is, you know, back to glyphosate, not only does it open the blood-brain barrier, it's a chelator. So it can grab that aluminum wherever it finds it, and it's plentiful. It's in deodorants. People are putting it under their arms, so it goes right into the body. People are probably in some stuff they put on their faces right into the body. So glyphosate is a chelator, can grab it, and as it opens the blood-brain barrier, just carry it right into the brain. Take it right through and many studies have shown that way, I remember 20 years ago, that aluminum was connected to Alzheimer's disease, and they, you know, it was infancy of our research. But now they're coming back to that, that its role in, in, in um, Alzheimer's. So, I mean, this is hugely important, the environmental issues. So you mentioned about uh, regeneration, and you know, which involves neurogenesis genesis and our uh, nerve pathways regenerating and growing so tell us um, how this happens what helps us regenerate these pathways and get our hippocampus to grow back and be healthy there's um there's there's a compound called brain derived neurotrophic factor it's it's a neurotrophin um sounds a bit complicated but 
Uh, neurotrophins, when you break down what they actually mean, they, they mean nervous system nourishes. They, they're trophic. They, they nourish the nervous system. So we need to have, uh, there's also one called nerve growth factor as well, uh, glial-derived neurotrophic factor. They all sound complicated, but they help us nourish our brain and help it to regrow. And neurogenesis depends on these neurotrophins. Um, and it can be from things like being in the parasympathetic uh, nervous system, being relaxed and maybe engaging in yoga, meditation, eating the right foods like the Mediterranean diet, exercising, being in the country, being by the sea, uh, being with good friends, laughing, crying. All these things can activate brain-derived neurotrophic factor and help to rebuild and recharge our brain. So it's a, it's a, very, it's a fascinating chemical and it's really exciting how the... Um, discovery of how it works uh, opens up all these things that we knew were always good for us but couldn't really find the science to prove it. Oh, that's very important. I also, yeah, I remember that exercise and even the serotonin reuptake inhibitors help build BDF, which is hugely important. So you mentioned many of the things that will help BDF, which uh, are good things for which I'm sure connect with all the other issues that we've discussed in this program. But what are some of the things that interfere with the development of BDF, that's brain-derived neurotropic factor, all these neurotropins, as, as Ray was discussing, that helps our brain grow, regenerate, rebuild, and come back to health. So what are the things that interfere with these um, brain um, inducers and helpers? Well, yeah, so inflammation is, is a big one. Inflammation will um, block the ability for us to make these brain-derived neurotrophic factors, these neurotrophins. Inflammation will block it. Um, so we have to do everything we can. Stress will block it. Stress will cause problems and block these neurotrophins. Lack of exercise um, and just not being around people we care about or doing things we care about. If you're, if you're living a life where you just feel you're on this treadmill and, and not engaging in things you are passionate about, that would be a problem. Eating a, eating a typical junk food diet will, will block them too. Um, so we, we know that uh, inflammation can be tripled in the brain compared to um, a Mediterranean diet if, if we're eating a junk food diet, where it's the brain and the whole body, in fact. So just eating the wrong things can make us more likely, far more likely to be depressed because we're blocking the ability for the brain to regenerate. Well, you also mentioned in your book there's some other things, and these things are all interconnected like a symphony. In yeah. addition to lack of exercise and the poor diet, saturated fat, sugar, sugar's a huge one, type 2 diabetes, yeah. hypertension, alcohol dependence, a brain bonker, uh, you know, when you get an injury yeah. to the brain air pollution. And as you also mentioned in your book, the thing to help the brain grow and nourish would be exercise, mindfulness, the Mediterranean diet has helped, social enrichment, as you said, environmental enrichment, uh, yoga, meditation, dance, music, sun, uh, mindfulness, and even some um, uh, foods such as pomegranate, raspberry, strawberry, walnut, blackberry, Etc. And also omega threes, uh, Bactobacillus, uh, St. John's wort, epi- and you know various things you mentioned in your book. So for more detailed information, mm. you can check his book. So okay. So tell us about how 
stress does affect mental health. I know it affects every other disease, every disease imaginable. Stress makes it worse. So tell us more about that. Well, first of all, um, I mentioned mitochondria. Uh, the, they're the little power packs that, that give us uh, all our cells and uh, our brain energy. Well, when we need to make more neurons in our hippocampus, the neurogenesis, we, we need these mitochondria to be working flat out by uh, day four of the shift from the basic stem cell through to um, forming a, a new brain cell within, a new neuron within the hippocampus. And if there's not sufficient energy, then that will fail. We won't be able to make any more neurons. And we get, we get 700 new neurons a day that have the potential to become fully-fledged adult neurons. And so if there's not enough energy, then that is a real problem. And one of the biggest killers for energy in the brain is stress, that the, the cortisol from stress can cause so much um, damage to mitochondria that they're not able to supply energy to allow these neurons to uh, grow and mature into fully-fledged uh, neurons. So that's, that's one thing. That's, that's um, one thing why, why stress is a problem. Stress also causes the breakdown of mitochondria and our cells, and then those cells breaking down drive inflammation, which um, then further activates microglia and can, can be a problem and damage brain cells, and particularly in the, in the hippocampus. Uh, but then, then we move on to uh, the vagus nerve, the, the vagus nerve, so that this rest and relax and repair part of our nervous system works through part of the uh, the nervous system called it's the vagus nerves. They're they're like wanderers. They they comes from vagabond, a wanderer, and they're everywhere in our body. And when we rest and relax and go engage in mindfulness, yoga, walking, being with people we love, the vagus nerve releases beneficial healing compounds. So if we're if we're not in that uh, parasympathetic rest relaxation mode, um, then we will be shifting towards sympathetic activation, which will also be damaging uh, our nervous system. Yeah, again, the body is so interconnected because when we have stress, cortisol rises. And what does cortisol do? It increases inflammation. It increases insulin resistance, which, again, creates more inflammation and oxidative stress. And it's a bad spiral mm. going in the wrong direction. So stress, every disease is uh, impacted in a negative way by stress so that's one important thing for the listener to keep in mind i mean stressful things will come and some people say a little stress is okay you've got this hormetic effect a little stress will get the body generated but if we have more stress than we can handle and more that the body can compensate for when we heal it's while sleeping it can lead to problems so tell us about the effect of diet on our mental health why are some diets so protective? Um, the, when the, 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 one, the most wonderful diet uh, for mental health seems to be, and it's, it's mostly, it's, it's well studied, it's the most studied diet with regard to many health conditions, including mental health, is a Mediterranean diet. And so it has within it a, a lot of Things like olive oil, um, plenty of fruits and vegetables, um, a little, little bit of red wine can be helpful, and uh, also a social element. That they, they pay they, the definition of the Mediterranean diet through. If you go to um, 
the United Nations, the United Nations definition of the Mediterranean diet includes the sociability of, of preparing the food together, of eating together. So you've got not just the nutrients, you've got things that involve this um, enrichment of, of, of social connection around you as well. And they even go as far as suggesting that you buy plates and glasses locally as well so that the whole um, nourishment is an immersive process, not in just the food, but in society and the people around you. And that, I think that's, that's a really charming way uh, of seeing nourishment. Um, so compared to Mediterranean diets, the typical Western diets really inflammatory and these microglia that we have in our brain, they really start to inflame when we uh, eat junk food. And, and as you said, uh, including, including lots of sugar as well. So some drinks will have high fructose corn syrup that will be damaging, but sugar will cause a problem to the hippocampus because it um, it means that uh, the brain, which which needs glucose, when we have too much sugar, refined sugar, it means that the the brain can't deal with regulating the amount of glucose gets into the brain, including the hippocampus. And when that starts to go awry, then it's strange, but the uh, excess sugar can mean there's insufficient glucose to insulin resistance getting into the hippocampus, and that can be uh, something which leads to depression. So, so not just the Mediterranean diet, but maybe a, a diet that's um, including foods of a low glycemic index to allow um, the glucose to flow freely into the into the hippocampus and, and into the whole brain. Well, sugar is a hugely important issue. I mean, I know that the dietitians maybe 20 years ago were looking at fats as being the culprit in many diseases. But this thinking is shifting, especially with Gary Taubes in his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, uh, uh, Robert Lustig, whom we've interviewed on this show, and is, uh, is Dr. Feynman that's done a lot of research and written a book on it. So sugar is becoming a huge uh, culprit. I mean, it's addictive, similar to dopamine and drugs. It can be a gateway to other uh, addictions as it can desensitize your receptors, your little uh, things that um, g- grab on the chemicals in the body, such as dopamine, which is involved in addiction. Um, <clears throat> it can uh, deplete uh, other minerals. It can deplete minerals such as magnesium. It can dysregulate um, the appetite um, regulators such as leptin. Uh, it really is called a involved in a lot of health problems and it's something just to be avoided at all costs if we can. Any yes, and it's not sugar? just it's, it's not it's not just um, sugar uh, on its own. It's also sugar's inter- interaction with hormones too that for women uh, because of its triggering of insulin, the hormone insulin, insulin then can interfere with uh, a woman's balance of estrogen which then can affect a woman's mental health. And we do know that, that women suffer from depression twice as much as men during their fertile years. And sugar plays a big role in this upset of female hormones. So going from puberty all the way through the um, menstruation, through pregnancy, to menopause, sugar has a really profound in- influence on uh, a woman's mental health. Yes, you mentioned quite a bit of that in the book, that it affects the menstrual cycle. Um, it can affect, um, you know, growth of puberty. It can affect how you feel in motherhood. It can affect the risk of certain 
um, maladies during pregnancy, such as preeclampsia. It can affect hypertension. It can affect so many things. So sugar, um, in spite of what the sugar industry tells us, is something that we should eat just moderately. I mean, minimize the glycemic index. But also, as you mentioned, food. I mean, because most of these foods, junk foods, are so inflammatory that, um, you know, I mean, the junk food, the standard American diet, uh, which is abbreviated SAD. Some people say HAD for horrible American diet. Highly inflammatory. And, you know, we want to minimize the inflammation. And all the chemicals that are in these foods um, are concerning as well. Now, um, in Dr. Greenblatt's book, he looks at uh, foods such as uh, gluten and, you know, dairy products as being challenging for some people. What do you have to say Mm. about gluten and dairy products? Uh, Gluten, one of the the big problems with with gluten is the uh, damage to the, we mentioned the blood-brain barrier, um, and also gut permeability, but so... Gluten can trigger and gliadin within within can trigger uh, the release of uh, a protein called zonulin, and that can make the blood-brain barrier and the um, gut more permeable. So that can allow not only bacteria across to cross the uh, through the the gut wall, and that can drive inflammation and get into the brain and drive microglia activation, but also the things we talked about before about the the blood-brain barrier being. Um, leaky as well, and that driving inflammation, allowing toxins and immune cells in. Yes, I mean, Dr. Fas- Alessio Fasano has done work on zonulin, and etc. But um, also gluten, people, a doctor might measure the gliadin antibodies and say, oh, you're not affected, you're not, you're not sensitive, but gluten has at least eight components, and you've got to measure each component. One of the components, uh, gliadorphin, I mean, it's similar to morphine. Um, it is, you know, it can be addictive, and in dairy products, is caseomorphin, that people can become addicted to these. But in gluten, according to Tom O'Brien, we don't have enough enzymes to totally digest it. It's like a necklace. And it might get, you know, our enzymes might get it down to clumps, but it won't get it down to the individual pearls in that necklace. And so with a leaky gut, which gluten can help, uh, you know, your gut opens, these compounds go into the blood, our um, protective immune system is hey, you're a foreigner, we've got to go get you. So we mount an army of antibodies. But these antibodies cross over through molecular mimicry to attack other parts of the body. For example, there's something called glutenataxia where people can't even walk straight. That's clearly affecting the balance in the brain, in the cerebellum where the balance is housed. So stopping uh, gluten could help that because gluten crosses over with the Purkinje cells in the cerebellum, which is control balance. It crosses over with thyroid cells. It crosses over with the islet cells in the pancreas, which make our insulin. So um, some some people so there's this, uh, some people might attack it might attack the islet cells in the pancreas. So that you know leads to something called diabetes 1.5 or LATA, where people look skinny but they're losing all their insulin resistance and they're losing their insulin, but Gluten can trigger this, and a lot of people don't know this is going on. So gluten can affect adversely affect the brain, and for some people, uh, dairy products as well. Now I don't know, you know, 
uh, who's going to be affected by the dairy products. But according to Tom O'Brien, we're all affected by the gluten. So that's an important yeah. part of our food that, you know, to help protect the brain. So yeah, there's, there is some, some evidence that there was uh, either a mutation or polymorphism that happened several thousand years ago where every single human being uh, is now uh, reactive to, to gluten. Um, and it's interesting. I've got uh, a new client, a new Parkinson's client I've started working with, and they don't appear to have uh, an allergy to wheat or gluten. And yet, um, they've got very, very high levels of zonulin, which, which indicates that wheat would be the last thing that they should be, be eating. Yes, I mean, we can have the sensitivity to it and no symptoms. I mean, we can be sensitive to it. It can be, you know, if it crosses over with uh, brain cells and the cerebellum, it can be affecting our brain. And, of course, that's connected with everything else. We, uh, we could be destroying our brain and parts of our body and our insulin-producing ability without even knowing it because sometimes it's just no symptoms. You can measure this test, as Ray says, for the zonulin to see if it's affecting you. But it's kind of a stealth-silent um, problem. And in Europe, I think the gluten yeah. is less uh, processed and is less damaging than in the U.S. Also, uh, in the U.S., they, you know, when they're about to harvest the wheat, they might spray it with glyphosate because it dries it out more quickly, which means we're bringing in glyphosate into our body as well. But glyphosate's everywhere now in organic food. You just can't get away from it. Glyphosate is the active component in Roundup, which is used for genetically modified foods as a herbicide so diet is hugely important and as ray says a healthy diet organic fruits vegetables multicolored the mediterranean diet make sure your meat is grass-fed as opposed to grain-fed because the grain-fed animals will have uh, insecticides hormones and antibiotics in it we don't want to be eating that plus a lot of glyphosate and uh, who knows what there's else? Al there's, al there's also another good thing about grass-fed is that it's very high in things like vitamin K, and um, vitamin K can support mitochondria. It's anti-inflammatory in the brain. Uh, it supports the gut-brain axis. So, so grass-fed foods, uh, green, green vegetables, and grass-fed animals and food will be, have a, a, a ample supply of vitamin K. Um, Mitochondria can use vitamin K to help support CoQ10, a, a very important antioxidant in mitochondria. So vitamin K can support it there. Uh, so it's really good to have grass-fed and uh, pasture-fed animals. Also, they're supposed to be higher in omega-3s. I mean, omega-3s, they're recommending we eat fish, but according to Joseph Pisano, who's an expert on toxins, the worst food you can eat is the ones that, you know, are farmed salmon, uh, you know, and now, we've interviewed Dr. Persano on the show, but farm salmon. So, I mean, a lot of people think if you eat salmon, you're going to get good omega-3s. And if it's wild, you've got a better chance. But um, so if we can get it from grass-fed uh, meats as well, that's important. another important source. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you're talking about social enrichment being good for well-being. So how does this support the brain? Uh, well, the, one of the, we're starting to realize that oxytocin that was 
um, we thought was originally just something that was between a mother and child to help them bond. We now realize that oxytocin is something that we make around um, when we're with people that we love and people that love us and care about us. We make oxytocin as well. E- even our pets, if we stare into our, uh, our dog a dog's eyes and the dog stares back, back at us lovingly, we will make oxytocin and the dog will make oxytocin. So the dog will get a, a surge of healthy oxytocin and so will we. And what oxytocin does, it activates this vagus nerve that we keep mentioning and the vagus nerve then will release compounds like brain-derived neurotrophic factor and uh, anti-inflammatory compounds into mitochondria and the, and the central nervous system and the heart and the and the and our bone and every part of our body. So, uh, so like mindfulness, spirituality, um, meditation, all these things can help um, with this um, well-being. And you talking about yeah, we, Vegas? We, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, the so heart rate variability is is something that we're starting to pay attention to you might see there's more and more apps available that can measure heart rate variability with an app uh, clip to your ear or or something like that and to a mobile phone so the more variable the heart rate is the more we're into this healing parasympathetic nervous system which will work through our vagus nerves so anything that will help us activate that and access that will be, be really really healing for our brain so this is touching on the gut, which as we've mentioned many times in this program is core in any health and any uh, approach to trying to go toward wellness. So what, can you discuss a little bit of the role between the gut and the brain and depression? I mean, obviously you've touched on it with the vagus nerve because that sends symptoms mm. up to the brain. But can you elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, I mean, the vagus nerve uh, connects the uh, the gut to the brain, and it's about uh, the communication is about 80% uh, going into the brain and 20% from the brain back to the gut. So it's a two way communication. And yes, the, the vagus nerve allows this connection from the gut to the brain. So we know that beneficial bacteria like uh, Lactobacillus and Bifidobacteria um, are really good because uh, a balanced gut, a, a, gal- a balanced microbiota will send. A positive signals through the vagus nerve to, to the brain and, and help produce brain-derived neurotrophic factor and help the hippocampus. And we do know that if the, the gut's not balanced, then the hippocampus, hippocampus can shrink just because the uh, gut microbiota are, are out of balance. Um, so, so we, and we also know from animal studies that if we block this vagal connection from the gut to the brain, the hippocampus shrinks as well. So it's, it's a really important connection that we're starting to really pay attention to. It, it seemed quite strange originally that something so distant from the brain could have such a profound effect on our, the health of our brain and our mood. And the interconnection is both ways. The brain affects the gut as well, doesn't it? Yes, it's the 20% going. To, so it's, it's about 80 I think they're called afferent and efferent. So afferents going uh, into the brain and efferents going from the brain to the gut. So yes, it's 80% connection, 80% of the signals going up and 20% coming down. So stress can affect the gut and then the gut can affect the brain. And it, I suppose it's potentially it can be a, a big cycle of one, one effect in the other, the gut inflaming the brain, the brain then starts to become unbalanced and that infects the gut. So it's, it, it can be a bit of a cycle. 
So what can the listener do to help with depression or help with this hippocampus if we're worried about it getting smaller? What do you recommend the listener to do? It's um, compiling together, and that's what the, the book tries to do. What we try to do in, in the book is to uh, bring together all these aspects of, of what can uh, lead to depression. So starting off with with diets, making sure that a diet is not is a healthy diet. It's a diet we enjoy. We're with people we enjoy eating with. So and making sure there's plenty of variety of fruits and vegetables. That that seems to be really important. It's not the amount of fruits and vegetables we eat. It's it's the variety because then we get a, a wide range of beneficial healing compounds in them, which can directly uh, lock into. Uh, receptors in the brain. So it's fascinating that parts of our food compounds, that some of these polyphenols that are in our food can lock into receptors in the brain and trigger brain growth. I find that's really exciting. Uh, exercise. Exercise is incredibly important. We have to make sure that we get plenty of exercise. That, that is also healing. It reduces inflammation. It increases energy to the brain. It increases our sense of well-being. Um, yeah, the gut-brain axis, so making sure the gut's looked after, that we've got a good bacteria in our gut. Um, we're um, making sure we get out and about. So you might have heard recently about uh, green and blue prescriptions. That, and it, it, do, it does sound quite trivial, but uh, making sure we get out into the countryside and we're with um, plants, a wide variety of plants and hills and grass, um, and that's the green prescription. And if you can't do that outside in the country, then maybe a park or garden inside a city would be um, equally as beneficial. Also being by, by the coast, being by sea, if you can, if it's, if it's, if it's the sea or a lake nearby, the, the blue prescription, making sure that we, um, things like waterfalls, uh, seagulls, beaches, um, lakesides, even swimming, all those things can uh, be, be the blue prescription. Uh, reducing inflammation, making sure we're not around. So, yeah, it's good to be around people that we love being with, but also making sure we're not around people that we find are stressful to us or um, quite aggressive towards us. These people can drive brain inflammation if we're around people that are really disturbing us. They can really harm us at, at much deeper levels than we ever realized. So that, that is incredibly important. Um, sometimes if we're, if we're depressed, maybe we don't want to be around people. So that, that's not the same as being around people that are really aggressive towards us. That if we want to be alone, that's different. But if we're around people that we know are really aggressive um, and not providing any benefit to our lives, then we shouldn't be around them too much. That sounds like very good advice. But many of these things, as we've discussed in other programs on this show, are all interconnected with just about every disease imaginable. For example, it mentioned sleep. There are studies that poor sleep increases the risk for depression. I mean, in uh, identical twins, uh, one with poor sleep had a two and a half times increased risk for depression. However, when you're depressed, one of the symptoms it could be poor sleep. So anyway, so these are all very uh, important. They're all interconnected with all the other diseases. And just like our body's a big symphony and everything's affecting each other. So, in your prescription, I guess it sounds like you, you know, try to get good sleep, handle stress as best as you can, eat well, exercise. What would you recommend in terms of supplements? 
I mean, you said to eat a variety of vegetables as opposed to worrying about the quantity, which I guess food is the best medicine. But if people were to take supplements, what would you recommend? Um, one of the most well-known ones for, for depression, a lion's mane mushroom, is, is becoming uh, quite well-known because of its ability to trigger uh, one of these neurotrophins. So lion's mane mushrooms, um, omega-3, uh, curcumin from turmeric, resveratrol, um, and taurine, alpha-lipoic acid, all the things that will support mitochondria. So the B complex um, and um, folic acid B12, all these things can be really supportive in not only helping energy but producing information and um, helping to drive a synaptic formation. So the connections in the brain, they uh, also need to have plenty of good fats like DHA from an omega-3 fatty acid. Uh, there's something called citicoline, which is a form of, of choline, which is important for not just making more neural connections, but also helping mitochondria drive themselves. And uh, components of protein called nucleotides, these are really important to drive synaptic growth as well. And uh, there'll be, you'll describe more of these in your book, correct? Yes, I do. Yes, it, it's, I can't, I can't, it'd, be, it'd be a long list if I kept going on about them over here. Okay. Now, you mentioned healthy fats. Uh, so what is a healthy fat? For example, I believe vegetable oils are highly processed, so uh, are considered unhealthy. What are healthy fats? Well, the, we, we don't, because of the, the Western diet, we tend to not have uh, enough of the omega-3 fatty acids like uh, EPA and DHA, and as I just said, DHA is incredibly important in keeping our synapses uh, healthy, uh, our mitochondria working, and yes, we, we keep we need to keep um, making more synaptic connections as things happen in our lives. We need to have these uh, healthy fats which are helping to remodel and model model our brain in 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 a representation of what's going in our outer world. I think that that's something we perhaps don't appreciate. We have to keep making our brain in a, in a model of, of inside of, of what's happening outside. So these synaptic connections are making connections to represent what, what we're experiencing externally. And we need lots of fats, good fats, uh, phospholipids and omega-3 fatty acids um, to, to help with that. Also, uh, extra virgin olive oil is, is really helpful. It's got some really good polyphenols in it, and that's a, a core part of the Mediterranean diet. And as you said, we want to avoid too many omega-6 fatty acids, particularly the processed ones. The processed ones will have lots of damaged fats uh, called lipid peroxides within them, and this will damage the good fats with, within our brain. Uh, what about rapeseed oil or canola oil? Isn't that highly processed as well? They are they they are uh, highly processed. So I'd avoid any highly processed oil if if if, um, if at all possible. the The important thing is to eat as well as possible, as well as you possibly can, but not get too stressed either. Um, if I know some people that eat really really well, but they make it such a stress to eat the right thing that they, their stress levels are going up and negating some of the beneficial effects they have from from eating well. 
Well, we have three minutes left in the show, so I would like, uh, if you could, uh, want what points would you like to emphasize? Is there anything we left out? What messages would you like to leave the listener with? And you could tell them how to get a hold of you and your website, etc. Okay. Um, to 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 summarize things, the uh, depression is, is is a whole body experience. We we've we've. Uh, focused for far too long on just the psychological aspect, and and that is really really important. But trying to make sure that the structure of our brain and our body is able to hold all what's, go- what's going on in within our life is is so important. So we we need to make sure we're nourishing our body with good food. It's a our brain is an absolute miracle of evolution. It needs the best quality foods, but also. People, we need the best quality people. We need to have uh, an environment that, that the human race has evolved in a very beautiful environment. We need that to nourish our soul as well. It all sounds very um, spiritual, but the human body is quite spiritual. It needs these things to feed our central nervous system. Uh, and, and my book, Depression, uh, the Mind Body Diet, a Lifestyle Connection, tries to bring together all these aspects to to talk about and discuss how we nourish uh, our whole body and our brain to keep our, our mood uh, and protect us from depression. Um, my, my book is available on Amazon, amazon.com. It's available as uh, a talking book on Audible. It's on Kindle and it's also on paperback as well. So that's available there and I believe it's available for many um, retailers online as well. I do have a uh, a LinkedIn page. I have a Facebook page. So LinkedIn Ray Griffiths. I have a Facebook page, Depression Book. Uh, that's the that's the Facebook page for depression, the mind, body, diet, and lifestyle connection. And I'm on Twitter as well. Okay, I'm going to look up all those today. Anyway, uh, this is such important information. Uh, it's uh, a it, brain is hugely important. Uh, it, it's something we want to nourish the best we can. And it certainly is crossover between what uh, Ray is recommending and what all the other experts on the show recommend about what we need to do to be proactive in our health. So it's very good information. And the spiritual is hugely important. Unfortunately, many people minimize it, but I think it is one of the most important things that we can address and, and you know, and support. So any final parting words um, in the last couple of minutes? Yeah, I, I just wanted to, um, on my, the, the final page of my book, I talk about these, uh, these new cells in the hippocampus, how they, I liken them to baby turtles having to navigate the dangers of the beach before they get to the sea. And so, just to um, try to avoid some of these things that sap our, uh, our brain energy, so like stress and poor diet and poor relationships and poor um, situations. So try to be outside more, try to be by the sea more. So um, it, it's really just to highlight the need to nourish our body and not be led astray by the, by the strains and stresses of modern life. Well, that is such good advice. So I recommend the listener uh, go find Ray's book and uh, do your own research and, you know, discuss it with your clinicians and health providers and share this information with others and help yourself. And above all, be well. 
you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.